Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. And here in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, you have a marvelous truth. Let me ask you this. What would you do? How would you feel? How would you be motivated? If there was something that in your heart you had longed for for 10 years, but politically, financially, and in many other ways could not have. And then after the space of 10 years you could have it. How would you feel about it? How would you feel if it was 20 years? How about 30? In this case it's been 70 years. That's the context of Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't start out in his life with the desire to be in the context that he's in right now in a very actionable way. He was reared outside of the land of Israel. In fact, except by travel, he likely was not even born in Israel and had never been in it, except had it might be by some type of governmental travel. He acquired in the opening pages of this book the opportunity to be a cupbearer for the king. His responsibility as so trusted was to sample the food and beverage, as it were, that would come before the king. So if it was poisonous, it would take his life rather than it would take the king's. In the opening chapter of 1 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is moved at his heart because he hears from the people, the Israelites, that the land of Jerusalem, the land of Israel, is in utter disarray. Nebuchadnezzar, many years before, had brought his cohorts, his hordes of masterfully skilled soldiers in, and they had eradicated all the fenced cities of Judea. The fenced cities were the walled cities. They were the important cities. He had ripped the walls down, so now any man could ride in and out. Even ravaging beasts could come. And to the diadem of Judea, I speak of Jerusalem, that would be the last place he would besiege. And over a three-year siege, he would build his great earthworks, allowing the movement of troops to go up a steep vertical incline over the walls. He had cut them off from the known world. He had began the process of strangulation so that they would raise the flag, but they would hold out in one regard, historically at least, admirably, until at once the Babylonian soldiers would come in and the walls of the city would be completely dilapidated. The temple which every Jew held in high regard, that pinnacle of Solomon's kingly ministry, this edifice built until to Yahweh and to Elohim, to the God of gods, has been raised. It's just a nothingness now. The gold has been trenched out and dredged out. There's nothing now. As all of these Jews, not unlike Daniel, are carried away in captivity, and so they'll remain for 70 years, <clears throat> foreigners are brought in, displaced people. And Nehemiah gets a first-hand account of how horrible it really is. He thinks about the stories of his parents. He thinks about the promises of his God, and his heart is broken. And through this brokenness and his submissiveness, God opens an opportunity for him to go back for the exclusive purpose of building up the walls of Jerusalem and establishing them. And so he will do in the preceding chapters. 
He will lead men, but he'll find all various sundry type of Jew. He'll find Jews that hate what he's doing. He'll find Jews that feel that they're too good to engage in the endeavor that he has set out to be. He'll find men and women that are fearful. He'll find men and women that are often the guise of great disdain by those that are around them, insomuch that he'll actually order them to have a trial in one hand, a sword in the other. And then there will be those that really don't want this wall built again because it will mean the establishment, the establishment, possible establishment of a Jewish people and a Jewish nation. And they'll heckle him. And they'll mock him. And when that does not work, they'll beg of him, Nehemiah, come down. Let's talk a little bit, Nehemiah. Set that down a little bit. Let's, let's have a conversation. But he's always too busy. He recognized forthwith the truth that his life was all too short to accomplish all of the wishes and admirations that all would have and the will of God. And because of his dedication and God's glorious provision, he'll complete the wall. And the chapters of Nehemiah are full of historical events of these individuals that stood with him. For no man, when you think of a ministry, this ministry is not done by one person. It is God's people that engage upon it. And so it was with Nehemiah. And they built, and they built, and they agonized, and they sweat, and they were worn, and they endured blistered, and they endured people that would mock them and verbally accost them and abuse them and threaten and gnash upon them. And yet they see with great joy... These walls built it. Seventy years, the walls have been built. Now, what's a lot of God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians going to do when they see a part of the will of God completed? I think of the Proverbs. Solomon wrote, 25th chapter of the Proverbs, as cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a faraway country. The scripture does not recollect, really, the news back in Persia and Babylon about what had been accomplished. But we know the word had went there. Prior to, Ezra had taken about 30,000 back with him, prior to Nehemiah. And they just struggled mightily. In fact, they would be waylaid politically and in other ways for 15 years and not able to rebuild the temple. And that would come later. Haggai the prophet was a moving force upon that. And he brought divine accusation upon them. And he, he ridiculed them. And it motivated them. And they build the temple. And then Nehemiah comes sometime later and builds the wall. And now here you are. The temple's built. And no, it's not as grand as Solomon's. And the walls are back. And in one sense, perhaps not as grand as it was in the time of David and Solomon, but they're present. And each of the walls had segmented areas where there were gates. Now, I only mention this because when you come to verse number 1, you come up at the water gate. That was a door in the wall. In fact, it was on the west side. It was, if you were to walk out that water gate, you come to the spring of Gihon. And that's mentioned over in the gospel. This spring was an underwater, freshwater spring. And, and in some regard, it had been the saving faith of Hezekiah. For this water would flow underground and he would have built pools within the city of Jerusalem. And during Hezekiah's day, it allowed them to withstand Sennacherib as he would besiege it in the 700s B.C., almost 150 years before Nebuchadnezzar. But if you were to walk outside this water gate, there's the Gihon Spring. 
and she flowed underground and came under the city walls and then flew down to the pool of Siloam down there uh, near the south end of the city. Uh, outside of that gate, you have the refuge gate, and that would take you out to the Valley of Hinnom. And that was the refuge area. That was, that was a city dump. That's where the capital incinerator was, you know, for those that are familiar with that in our area. Uh, but this is where it was, and you have all these gates that surrounded it. And so here it is, the task is being completed. And that's what brings us to this eighth chapter. Ezra, Nehemiah present, but Ezra's the priest, the scribe. And as was recorded, they're going to get out the book. And they're going to read it. And Ezra's going to read and teach all day long. And the people of God are going to apply it to their life. What a majestic consideration. I could think of anything. I really could think of nothing I should say grander to do when seeing the will of God being accomplished than to gather around for the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. The Word of God is an inexhaustible, eternal manual for the believer. It is truth. It is preserved. It is our stabilizing force in a world that wavers at every imagination. It is exalted truth in a society of diabolical doctrines that so often harass well-meaning but misinformed believers. It is concrete. Its evidence is light and it demarks a clear path in which a believer can engage and thereby have success in their way. The psalmist says, Thy word is a light unto my path. We forget so often that this world is but darkness. And what a travesty that darkness now is so prevalent that we can Google it. And we can ask society what is truth. And they can tell you what truth was as only pertains all of the best of human thought. But we have, as Paul said, the mind of Christ. I never have to wonder what God is thinking. Because he's already told me. I have preserved from me a remarkable scripture. It has stood since the first words were penned. Now, I, I like to follow tech, technological stuff. One day, I, I told my son the other day, I said, I, I would love to have an AI vehicle. I say, why? I said, I just, just to be able to do multiple things. I'm not a motorhead. I, you will never hear the words come out of my mouth that says, I love to drive. I do love to drive people up a wall, but I do not love to drive. And to think that I could push a button and say, take me to grandma's house we go. And it drives and, and I could converse. I can sleep. It's dangerous to sleep and drive at the same time. But if it's an AI vehicle, you might be okay with it. And I think of these things. And I read just the other day that Toyota came out with a, uh, a combustible engine that's fueled by hydrogen. And I said, I don't know about that. I like electric better. It seems to me the word Hindenburg comes to mind with hydrogen. And I don't want to engage in it. But the word of truth has been around. And, and, if, and if a thousand years from now we're all zooming around in oxygen vehicles with, with some type of mechanical lungs that your vehicle just breathes in fuel and you never have to refuel and you could push a button and you could be in Dallas and you could push another button and, and, and be in L.A. for whatever reason someone wanted to go there. Or you could go over to New York. You go anywhere in the world you wanted to go. You know, the Word of God is still going to be present. That's what God means when He said, Thy Word is preserved from this generation forevermore. I marvel at that. It's truth from beginning to end. 
The Bible makes some remarkable claims about itself. For instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible, this providentially preserved book, proclaims itself that it is inspired of God. The Greek word, and it barrels us well to know this doctrinal truth, is theonutos. Thea, God, nutos, breathe. You might think of the word pneumatic. To be inspired in a theological sense does not mean that it's encouraging. In fact, that would be somewhat of a misnomer. If we believe that the word Bible was inspired, if we believe that word inspired meant encouraging, because there's portions of the Bible that I do not know that I find forthwith to be encouraging, particularly the parts where it tells me that I'm a sinner. And as a result, I'm under the wrath of God. I do not find that to be encouraging in its essence. Um, when you think of inspired in the modern context, you might think uplifting, awe-giving, motivating. I do not find the genealogies of scriptures, as we've already heard, to motivate me to do anything outside of skip them. So I would not say the word inspired in a theological sense means motivated to awe. So then what does this word mean? Inspired means God spake. You see, Helen Stowe, that used to write all of those greeting cards, you might would say of her cards they were inspiring, they were awe, they were motivating, they were encouraging. That is not the same as the theological word and the theological doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration means it's something that God spoke to be recorded Peter puts it this line on, on this portion of inspiration. And this is important because you'll hear folks talk about, well, men wrote the Bible. Well, it is true. God used men. But the theological truth of inspiration goes far beyond just a man used. Peter put it this way. He said, holy men of God. Do you remember the word? They were moved. That's a nautical term. In the days before steam engines, in the days before electric vehicles, or hydrogen vehicles, or gasoline vehicles, or steam engines, or whatever it might be. The waves and power of the sea moved you. You went on predetermined course routes. That's what Peter was saying. And Peter knew full well what he was saying. He was one of those men. He wrote of himself as being a holy man of God. Oh, he didn't always act holy, did he? But the Lord prayed for him. Peter... Satan desires to sift you of the wheat, but I have prayed for thee that, that, that when you are converted, you return to your senses, you'd strengthen your brethren. And Peter, God moved upon his heart, and Peter wrote with his hand the very words. We call that verbal and plenary inspiration. The very words God wanted him to write. I marvel at that. I'm not a writer. I'm a wishing I was a writer. I'm a, I'm a wisher-iter, but I'm not a writer. And you know what I know about Peter in particular? Acts chapter 4, he was an unlearned man. That's what they said about him. He doesn't contradict him. He doesn't contradict their aggression. God does not contradict the statement. It means he was ignorant. He was not educated like Paul. He did not have the opportunity to sit at high courts and listen to people wax eloquently. Peter didn't have that. He's a fisherman. Give him a line and a worm and he could do something with it. But there was a time and the Holy Spirit of God moved upon Peter. And Peter wrote, we 
are not redeemed with silver and gold, but with the incorruptible seed that is the word of God. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is precious. Peter wrote that you desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow by thereby. And I know he didn't write it in English, but I, I'm trying to convey the point to you. I think of that when that event had taken place. Peter said, wow, that's sure nice. That must have been the Lord. <laughs> Inspired. That's what it means to be moved upon. And the scripture says that all scriptures, from Genesis all the way down to Revelation, from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void till the very end of the chapter where the apostle John the Beloved concludes his writing under inspiration by saying amen. Every bit of it is inspired. Whole scripture, the scripture says, is inspired of God and is profitable. That's a remarkable statement the scripture makes. It makes the remarkable statement about its veracity. What I mean by that is its truth. John 17, in his prayer, the Lord prayed this, Sanctify them, that is, his believers, those that are in Christ. Sanctify them, set them apart from the world and the wickedness. Sanctify them by thy truth. But what is this truth wherewith God will sanctify us? Thy word is truth. There's great veracity in this particular essence. The psalmist David in the 19th Psalm, the law of the Lord is Perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word of scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, inspired, God-given. Because they're given of God, they're truthful. But I'll give you a third thing about the Scriptures and what it says about itself. And really, it's what the Lord said after 40 days of fasting into the wilderness to be tempted of the evil one. And with each temptation, he subsequently answered from Deuteronomy. You know, that book that we often don't get to in our Bible reading. God answered with it. And in Matthew chapter 4, it's recorded this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Think about this. You think of all the decisions that you make in life. It's January 1. You think of all the decisions you're going to have to make by February the 1st or by December the 31st of 2023. There'll be grave decisions that you'll have to make. There's going to be decisions to come that you don't even know that they're going to be aware of. Some of you are going to have to make children uh, decisions about your children. Maybe hard decisions. Some of you are going to have to make vocational decisions. Some of you are going to have to make some financial decisions. To retire or not to retire, that is the question. What are you going to do? How, where do you get those answers? Man shall not live by bread alone. What is he saying? For the child of God, you need to know something about money. God's giving you his principles. Implicitly or explicit? Explicit is an overt command. Implicit is the principles of the Word of God. He's given you the truth you need to know. You want to know something about government? God's given it to you. You want to, you want to know something about how to have peace? 
Man shall not live by bread alone. You want to know something about death or life or family relationships or marriage? You pick the topic and the scriptures conveys the truth that the child of God needs. It is important. It's important because it's verified its truth. It's truthful because it's inspired of the word of God. And all of that means nothing if it is not preserved for us today. Meaning if all of this existed but I don't have it, then it means absolutely nothing. By virtue of saying that the Bible is inspired in truth and important for my life, there has to be something that I can lay my tangible hands on and say these words, this is the Word of God. Outside of that, then how can I say I have the unadulterated Word of God? These are the claims the Bible makes about itself. Yet when I think about the Scriptures moving beyond just what the Bible said, I think about what the saints have said. Some amazing things recorded, preserved in Scriptures for us. Listen to this. For instance, I think of Jeremiah the weeping prophet, Jeremiah that would be imprisoned, Jeremiah that would be thrown into a cistern, as it were, and sink in the mire. Jeremiah had to be rescued by the uh, chief servant, would have to uh, throw a a, a rag of ropes down, and and he would tie him out of his armholes and would pull him out. This Jeremiah that saw this, this great prophet of God that would weep as he would seek to have them turn from their wickedness and repent into righteousness before God. And he would prophesy just before Nebuchadnezzar would come in and destroy all things. Jeremiah says this about the word of God, Thy words were found. And I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's marvelous. He's a weeping prophet. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And he said, but I found thy words. And of the darkest of night it was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, thou Lord God of hosts. I think what David said in the 19th Psalm, the 10th verse about the Word of God, this is what David said. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. In the 40th Psalm, he continues, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. I think about what Job said about the Word of God. In the 23th chapter of Job, in the 12th verse, he said, Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. Note this. Trouble, tribulation, his flesh infirmed, his wife nearly mad out of her mind, his children passed on to glory, his substance become ruined. Listen to what he said. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Want to talk about how important the word was to Job or to David? Or to Jeremiah, let me give you one more, Paul. Paul the Apostle in the 7th chapter of Romans said this, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man of the heart. I delight in it. Marvelous. This is what saints of God in the Scriptures said about their affinity and desire and love for the Word of God. Now we're here in this particular Scriptures. There's a number of things that we could talk about the Word of God. Throughout its sense, it describes itself in a number of ways so that we get the importance and the imagery of how powerfully important it is.
It's described as milk and meat. It's described as a sword and fire. It's described as a hammer. James describes it as a mirror. It's described as Peter, as I quoted a moment ago, an incorruptible seed that passes not away. It's, it's, a, it's referenced as a lamp and a light in the 119th Psalm, a shining light in 2 Peter, water, gold, honey, an anchor of the soul in Hebrews chapter 6. And Jeremiah pulls all of this and says, Brethren, I can just describe it as this. It's sweet. Ezekiel did the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 3. It has an eternal source found throughout its pages. And so here in Nehemiah chapter 8, all of this history being behind them, the will of God being accomplished, the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls and the gate, and they're finished, and now what do you do? Note in verse number 1, the last part. And they spake unto Ezra, the scribe, and what did they ask him to do? Okay, I can't let this pass for a minute. I'll be sarcastic for a moment. Put something in your ears so you block this if you want. Let's have the singing group out, Ezra. Let's get the praise and worship rocking. Is that what they asked for? Let's market this. What they asked for? Bring the old book here. Bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded to Israel. What a marvelous entreaty. Look at how important it was. I want to point out just a few things here. The people's response. The people's relationship to the scriptures. Number one, I want you to note the great agreement that the word of God brought. Look in verse one. I want to point this out to you. He says, and all the people gathered themselves together. What's that phrase? Has one man. You know, I look at a room right here. And I get this picture. I get to see this. I'm spoiled. I get to see it two, three times a week. You don't get to see what I see. There are some of you I know better than others. I know some of you have very strong opinions about things. And there are some of you that don't have strong opinions about everything, but just about certain things. Yet we're sitting here this morning as one man. I know of nothing else that can unify the hearts of people outside of the superior truth of the Word of God as one man. Many of these Jews didn't even live in Jerusalem. How'd they know how to build the walls? Ezra, Haggai, Zerubbabel, they're building the second temple. How did they know how to build it? Most of the craftsmen were too young to have been in the original temple. And the few old men, how did they know? They were just tiny mites the last time they were here. How did they know what the temple looked like? And they pull out their Kodak. I got this app on my phone. I really like it. It was an accident. China's probably spying on me. (laughs) But every day it sends me an email and it says, look at your pictures on this date in the past. And I can go back and see my children from eight years ago. Oh, they were so perfect. (laughs) I see me from eight years ago. (laughs) The other day I went in there, I, I was telling someone about this. Popped up one day and there was a youth activity the church had six years ago. And some of the folks at that activity, they're here this morning. 
I said, wow, that's that. How did Jews know how to build a temple? How did they know how to build all those walls? How did they know where the gates go? How did they know these things? It had all been destroyed. They didn't have the archaeological tools by which to take some type of aerial sonar picture, an infrared picture. They couldn't go to the library of Jerusalem. They'd been torched. I submit to you they went to the law of God. And the same is truth for us. How do you know how you're supposed to build your life? There's some of you that don't have the advantage. You can't build your life like your parents did. Your parents, because of their lack of faith in Jesus Christ and lack of putting Him preeminent in their life, their marriages and their homes and, and some of the actions they engage in were an ultimate failure to their life. And you can't pattern your life after them. It's got to be distinctly different. How do you know how you ought to pattern it? That's the Word of God. Amen. It is the single greatest unifying force on the face of the world. Why? Because it doesn't preach a truth. A truth is a perspective. It teaches the truth. It unified their hearts. What qualified Ezra to stand up and preach? It calls him here the scribe. Why was it him they went to? Because they looked in the scriptures. And Ezra's granddaddy was one of the most noblest of all the high priests. In fact, if memory serves me correct, I believe, his great-granddaddy, had, you'd have to read this in the boring genealogies, but his great-granddaddy took a spear and ended the curse of God upon Jerusalem. Amazing. They looked into the It was as one man. Listen. You're reading this in the book of Nehemiah. It ain't in the book of Ezra. Why is Nehemiah talking about Ezra? Nehemiah outranks Ezra in the culture of the day. Nehemiah has access to the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Ezra don't have that. People would have listened to Nehemiah that wouldn't have listened to Ezra. Go back and read Ezra. But when it came time for this, they all submitted themselves to one. Why? Because they looked in the Word of God and it became God said. And I am going to submit to God. And when you get a group of believers that have the viewpoint and the perspective of divine and say, here's the Word of God, I'm going to submit myself, it's the greatest unifying face force on the face of the world. It brought agreement as one man. No wonder the psalmist pens in the 130th Psalm, Behold how good and pleasant is for brethren to walk in unity. Notice the second point that I would tell you in these verses we read. I want you to look at the attentiveness that it brought. Notice verse number 3. He says, And they read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women, and of those, this is the second time he said this, that could understand, and the ears of all the people were what? Attentive to the book of the law. And again, I submit to you, as I did in the morning hour, when we speak of the book of law, he's not just talking about Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. That's part of the reading of the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And this is the trespass offering that thou shalt bring. Uh, a couple of weeks Yes, a couple weeks ago we were talking out of Luke chapter 2. 
and, and, and after the birth of our Lord. Uh, on the eighth day, she brings him into the temple, and on the 40th day of his life, the scripture says this in Luke chapter 2, she came because the time of her purification was ended. That was exactly 40 days from his birth. It says according to the law of Moses. 40 days. And then the provision is they had to bring a turtle dove, two turtle doves or two pigeons in before and make sacrifice for them. All of that's in the law of Moses. See, it's been 70 years they didn't observe all this. And everybody had a different school of thought that had influenced them. And there were different opinions to be had upon things. And some felt that this might be the right way and some might be this right way. How are we going to settle it? Well, get old Ezra. He's the lawful one. Tell him to get the scrolls. Roll them out and read. And every man's attentive unto them. My, if I read that correctly, from morning until midday. That's an AM service. I'm teasing a little bit. 8 to 12, 8 to 2, reading. I wonder what was going through their minds. I probably could tell you. A little bit of reproof. Reproof means to tell you your fault. A little bit of rebuke. A little bit of exhortation. One old Jew in the back, you can almost hear him. His name was the Baptist. Oh, I was wrong about that. All this time, I thought, well, you heard what he read, honey. Dear old wife in the back's making a list for all the things the husband had failed in. I'm being sarcastic. Word of God properly preached. It bodes us well to be attentive to it. They were attentive. Why? Sometimes it was a thrill into their heart. And sometimes it was that sharp arrow that poked them and motivated them in the way that they should go. Notice the third thing, if you will, in verses 5 through 7. It brought some adoration. If that's too difficult of a word as it is for me, it was awe-inspiring in one sense. Look at verse 5 and 7. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it. Note the response of the people. It's what I want you to the awe. They stood up. If I understand that, they stand up. A fellow told me, right there is preachers, the proof text, that whenever we read the Bible, we should stand up. And I said, well, I, I think that's a good point, but no, it's not exactly what's being said. He said, why? I said, you've got to follow all the rest of it if you're going to do that. You start reading, they stood up. Then verse 6, all the people answered, amen and amen. Every time he spoke, they said, amen. Then he continues, and they lifted up their hands. It does say hands, right? I don't know how they held their scrolls. Anyway, I'll keep going. And what did they do? They bowed their faces. They bowed their heads, rather. And they worshiped the Lord God, their faces to the ground. The reading of the Word of God stoked awe and reverence into their heart. It was not commonplace. You know, that long chapter there, the 119th Psalm, it's all in context about the Word of God. Statutes, commandments, words, those are the references of the Word of God. In the 119th Psalm, the 16th verse, the writer says, I delight in thy statutes. Later he said, they are my delight, thy testimonies. 
Thy commandments are my delight. I will delight myself in thy commandments. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandment. Thy law is better than thousands of silver, or rather thousands of gold and silver. Unless thy law had been my delight, I should then have perished in my affliction. Verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. I love thy commandments. I love thy precepts. I love them exceedingly. I have longed for thy salvation. Thy law is my delight. Ah, oh, these folks had never experienced it. Six to eight hours of reading. Their faces bowed down in worship. Their hands in penitence raised. Their posture standing upright, moved with the awe and power of the inspired, eternal word of truth. Moved to it. Notice a fourth thing. Verse 8, there's application. That's the relationship between the scriptures and the word of God. We live in an age where there'll be some that embrace the word of God as long as you leave every man to apply it. You figure it out for yourself. That's not teaching. Can you imagine being in a math class and a teacher said, now today we're going to teach you arithmetic, two plus two, and that's what we're going to teach you. But you figure out what two plus two is. And little Brandon over in the corner said, I think it's seven. Well, little Brandon, you're right. Amen. You gave a good effort. Yes, you precious little boy. And then over here, little Susie, she said, well, I think it's four. Well, that, that, that can be, yes, Susie, that four is a good number too. Anybody else have an opinion? No, no teacher would do that. Not yet. I mean, maybe. No, you'd look at it and say two plus two is four. You make application. How? It's based systematically on the value of one. And when you have one, you have this many. And when you add that same sum to it, you get two. And when you add another of that singular sum to it, you get three. And when you add a fourth one to it, you get four. And it continues. And there's application. That's exactly what happens here in this text. Note verse 8. So they read the book and the law of God distinctly. And what's that next phrase? And they gave. This is what he's saying. Notice he goes again. And caused them to understand the reading. You see how they responded? It wasn't just that he wanted to read it. Or hear it, Rod. What is it that God is saying? You know, that's the calling of the man of God today. Preach what God has said. Teach. That's a qualification. First Timothy chapter 3. Be apt to teach. Give them the sense so that they understand the reading. Great application calls them to understand its truth and how it might be applied to the aspects of their life. And notice a fifth one, if you will. It brought acceptance. Verses 12 and following. I'll just read a few of these highlighted here. They understood the words in verse number 12. They made great mirth. They understood the words that were declared unto them. And verse 13, something happened. Now listen, on day one they read all the Old Testament law. By the context of Nehemiah chapter 8, they had to read through at least the end of Deuteronomy. No, sir. They had to read at least through the book of Joshua. Because his name's mentioned there. They did all that on day one. And then at the end of day one, after teaching it, everybody goes home. And the preacher tells them when they go home, 
in verse number 12. Eat, drink, send your portions, make great mirth. Be excited. So they come back for the second day of services. And on the second day, we're gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests, the Levites, and to Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. Verse 14, what happens? And they found written in the law, which the Lord hath commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seven months. Well, that's interesting. Notice where they didn't find it. It wasn't a motion from the congregation. I think we ought to adopt this. Nobody thought about this. Now, now keep looking in verse 15. And that they should publish and proclaim in all the cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth into the mount, fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booze as it is written. I want you to keep reading here. And so the people went forth and brought them. Now skip down for time's sake to verse number 17. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of captivity made booze. And set under the booze. What's that next phrase say? For since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Now, who's that fella? It's the Aleph. The commander that would take after, after Moses. It's the Hebrew word, the Aleph. Wait a minute. I'll ask you a question. Is this what the scripture is saying? Ezra, and these some 34,000 folks, read about this. And they go home and process it. Ezra says, man, we haven't been observing this, booths. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles is what he's talking about. Shukat is the Hebrew word. And then they looked in the history and they said, you know what? None of the kings, none of them, not even the fair psalmist of all of Israel, David, observed the Feast of Booths. Gideon didn't do it. Samson didn't do it. David didn't do it. Solomon, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Manasseh, of course, didn't do it. Ahab didn't do it. We're best of all to be doing this. That's what they found. You know, that's a danger about tradition right there. Tradition can be a safe thing in one regard. You've got to be careful. These people had done what their daddy had did and what his daddy did and what his daddy did. And guess what? They had omitted an important feast. And to beat all, they had omitted the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'm not going to quiz and tax your brain too much, but you know what the Feast of Tabernacles was? It was just a time to rejoice and to worship God. You didn't have to eat brittle herbs. There wasn't a sacrifice. There was no penitence that was brought. You build a booth. You, typically, they build it in their front yards. You had your whole family together. You ate together and talked about the goodness and provision of God. And they hadn't done it in nine to hundreds of years. But when they read the scripture anew, guess what? 
there was acceptance. My friend, that's one of the great things that the Bible does. Uh, There's so many things that one could follow in this life. Peter puts it this wise in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 15. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. It brought some acceptance. What is it the scripture says? Oh, booths and tabernacles. Well, that sounds culturally weird. I need to go get olive branches, palm branches, pine branches. There's another branch in there I'm missing. Myrtle branches. And I need to get some thick branches so I can build a booth in my front yard and camp out. That's what's being commanded. All right, let's do it. You know, that's the biggest problem with the conflict between the world system and the believer today. The believer knows the truth and is at some moral crossroads of whether or not they're just going to obey. Or are they too afraid because the world might think, well, that's a silly thing to do. If God has inspired His words, if God's words are true, if God's words are important, it seems to me that I'll just simply obey them in their proper context. That's the relationship between the people and the Scriptures. Mary Ann Lathbury penned these words many years ago. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou did break the loaves beside the sea. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. The relationship between the Bible and the believer is an essential one. It, the word of God, is a light to our path. It is that truth that we hold, that hope that we have, the eternal word that shall never pass away. It is preserved for this generation and forevermore. That is the believer's relationship. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.